October, Friday the 13th, 1989, Jimmy Wade Martin's body was found on a street in the small town of Bonterre, Missouri. When there are witnesses, a murder weapon, and a taped confession, how exactly does a murder become a cold case? This case has not ended by any stretch of the imagination. A lot of people in that town's not going to You know, come. rumor has it, it was... Big brawl, big bar fight. County jail. We have been working so hard on this. I can't be silent anymore. You know, like... There was rumors going around like the next day. They started doing a lot with Facebook. The question is, what happened to Jimmy Wade Martin? From Blueburn Productions, this is Small Town Forgotten. I'm your host, Chris Halsey. I could just say it's evidence that was collected at the scene during the original incident when it occurred back in 1989. So we knew it existed. Um, we just didn't know the location due to the age of it. And we figured out that the prosecutor at the time had collected the evidence and taken it for court purposes. And so when it came back, it got put into a different location. And then you know we were able to determine that because of the fact that it had gone to court. So you can confirm that you did find physical evidence from the scene that night yes. that, that you are able there, that a lab is able to obtain DNA from. They're doing it right now. Thank you for listening. If you are new to Small Town Forgotten, welcome. If you are a returning listener, thank you for coming back. As many of you know, our last episode was 10 months ago. The producers and I have re-listened to all 10 episodes in preparation for this one, and we've learned a lot. First, we should apologize to our listeners for saying definitively that anyone in their 60s is old. One Facebook commenter seriously took offense to that, and my mom doesn't blame him. Sorry, Mom. Second, it was very transparent that withholding information from our listeners was making us frustrated. The last two episodes in particular were very revealing to our emotional state. We badly want to tell you everything that we know we do. But investigators and the prosecuting attorney have advised us that we shouldn't. That we could jeopardize the investigation and the potential trial. Look, we know what makes this podcast different from most true crime podcasts. It's obviously our direct connection with the victim. And we have a responsibility to our family. We have a responsibility to the twins. It's also what makes us more careful. But maybe we're being too careful. For over 30 years, this case was forgotten and the twins carried it alone. Now, it has been reopened and we're happy about that. Don't get me wrong, we're very happy, but it's not enough. Reopening a case is not justice. A trial is justice, and our goal is to get a trial for the people that we think committed this crime. To put them in a room full of their peers, to hear the evidence that the twins, investigators, and small town forgotten has gathered, and for a judgment to be reached. We think that the verdict will be guilty, but we will never know if there isn't a trial. So yes, it's been 10 months and a lot has happened. And this time, we plan on sharing. We will tell you about the arrests. We will 
tell you about the found DNA evidence. And we will tell you about the new information that we have acquired. Let me recap everyone with where we are. In the small town of Bonterre, Missouri, on October 13th, or in the early minutes of October 14th, 1989, Jimmy Wade Martin was beaten to death. It was reported as a bar fight gone too far. That was not what happened. Jimmy Wade was hit on the back of his head from behind, and the pathologist believes was knocked out by this hit. Then Jimmy Wade was violently hit three times in the same area on his forehead. He lost a considerable amount of blood on the sidewalk of Mound Street, just two blocks away from the bar, the Coal Bend Tavern. He was taken to the hospital by ambulance, and then he died of his wounds. We are not sure what the murder weapon was. Various witnesses and police reports have mentioned either a landscaping timber, a baseball bat, or a slapjack as being present at the scene. Oh, and all hell just broke loose. They just come at me with, you know, all kinds of weapons, and, and I just ran, and, and so I fell down. David Brian White, a man unknown to Jimmy Wade, testified that he attempted to break up a fight in front of the Coal Bend Tavern where two men were beating up another man, who we call Shane Hill. Those men, plus Jimmy Wade, chased David all the way to Mound Street. One of the men was reported to have stopped chasing. David tripped on the ledge of a sidewalk on Mound Street, where he picked up a heavy landscaping timber that was on a nearby lawn and swung it around in circles to get the men away from him. He hit one of the men and knocked that person down. After David White hit the man, he dropped the timber and ran to his mother's house. He and his mother attempted to call the police that night and could not reach anyone. When David came back, he discovered that a man had been taken to the hospital. He assumed that man was the same person he hit. He confessed to the police the very next day. Much later, when he was shown a picture of Jimmy Wade, he stated that it was not Jimmy Wade that he had hit and recanted his confession. We have other reasons for believing his innocence. All of these men were strangers to David, and it was dark. Wielding a 4x4, four 4-foot-long four, four piece of landscaping timber, and hitting a person three times in the same spot seems impossible with something that big. And his motive of self-defense does not support the injuries that Jimmy Wade Martin sustained. They were too brutal, too intentional. David Brian White was incarcerated for three years for Jimmy Wade's murder, only to be released three days before the trial. Clearly, the prosecuting attorney at the time determined that even with this so-called confession, there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. To our knowledge, no one has testified to seeing David Brian White beating Jimmy Wade Martin. No one, including the other two men who were chasing him. In early 2021, law enforcement reopened the cold case of Jimmy Wade's murder based on the attention that this podcast was getting and the new information that the podcast and the twins had gathered. 
That's what we've revealed in our previous 10 episodes. But if you've been listening, you know that we have a lot more information. And you know that law enforcement has asked us to hold back anything that might affect a trial. We paused the podcast in February 2021. Yes, we were frustrated back in September. And then something miraculous happened. An arrest. Two arrests, actually. On October 25th, 2021, nine months ago, two suspects were taken into custody for questioning for the murder of Jimmy Wade Martin. They were arrested, and they spent the night in jail. Although there are certainly resources where you can discover the identities of these men, we are not going to tell you their names. We are still intending to be careful with the information we here at Small Town Forgotten are putting out. At the time, some of our listeners had even shared the mugshots of the men on Facebook, and we took them down. On October 26th, 2021, they were released. The St. Francis County prosecuting attorney did not charge them with the murder. Those were the facts. But let me tell you about the emotions. Was it unrealistic for us to hope that there was finally going to be arrests for Jimmy's murder? Maybe. But we did. We spent that Monday night in a haze of hope. 32 years of working and praying for the twins. All of our combined efforts by the small town forgotten team. We wanted this to be the moment. And then Tuesday... They were released. Bonterre, as you know, is a small enough town, and we had heard that these men thought it was over. The range of emotions that we have all experienced, elation, relief, then frustration, even fear. Is this the end? The twins, of course, were hit the hardest. It was... That was a great moment. I think just uh, I think finally, 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 someone has listened. Finally, someone has believed us. Finally, we have people fighting for what we have known to been the truth since 2007, before 2007. Mm-hmm. And it was just, um, it was, I don't even know how to describe the feeling. It was like, ah, our work is, here is our work right here with these mugshots because we are being, um, we, we're finally being listened to. So right. tell me about, you said people had called you or sent you text messages. Uh, there had to have been dozens of people reaching out. Was your phone just ringing off the hook? Yeah. yeah, and mine started at like 3 a.m., I yeah. think. <laughs> and I think it wa- it wasn't from us. Like, nobody knew the arrest um, because we did not put anything out there. We didn't tell anybody. Yeah, it was the suspect's family who put things on Facebook to make people think, okay, they were putting the pieces together, and they were like, oh, my gosh, are these the suspects of your dad's murder? Like, I don't think with if, if their family didn't say anything, I'm not even know. so sure that people would know. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we had I talked about that at the time. Small town forgotten. We never put anything out. No. We we never pointed fingers 
at anybody. But Facebook kind of caught a wave and people started changing their profile pictures oh. and the the sign at Hub's Pub. I mean, how did all that make you feel with when the community kind of came together around you guys? Dang it. I'm already tearing up. Well, <laughs> so whenever we knew that they got released, I think that was probably one of the darkest times that I've ever had. Like, it was... Um, I wanted to sleep so much because you couldn't, you can't feel when you're sleeping. So when I got home from work, I go to bed. And I think that I just kept thinking like they got away with it again. And, you know, um, it was like sleep became my solace for several days, you know, like, and then whenever you would, sorry, you're all right. Whenever you would lay down to go to sleep, you couldn't sleep. Um, because you had all these just different emotions, different thoughts. And like she said, it, it was it was so exciting that they got arrested, but then it quickly went to a dark place. Yeah. And then you have to think, like, our families have to deal with us whenever we're going through these different emotions. And I'm sure it's, you know, I try, especially having a daughter, to show her to be strong, but then also... You have to be, you know, I always tell her, you have to be persistent in what you want. And to see that persistency, to feel like it's about to be paid off. And then just, you I know. Was, I felt like I was kind of numb. Yeah. And then I felt like I was angry, but I felt like that was like the shield for my pain. You know, I was just angry. But then um, she said, you know, your family's the one that have to kind of deal with how you how you feel. Well, um, Chad came and got me up for dinner or something, and he was constantly coming there. Are you okay? And I'm like, I just want to sleep. And that's what I would do. But he come in there, and he was like, hey, won't you get up and eat some dinner? And so I got up, and I went out on the back deck, and I was just sitting there. And I hadn't been on Facebook in days. And I start throwing, scrolling through Facebook, and all I keep seeing is my dad's face and I'm like what is going on you know and um it just seemed like everybody started it was first my friends and well my tribe is what we call it and actually what's funny is Angela and I kind of we didn't really talk to anybody and we just kind of kept to ourselves yeah. for a little bit and finally I talked to her and coming over to help paint my house and um we were painting the living room and I Chad's like hey you got some mail here and I'm like what did I order? You know, and I don't remember ordering anything. And I got this, uh, this thing in the mail and the, it, so I oh, open yeah. it and it was a necklace from my friends and it said, uh, stay strong from your tribe. And they had got Angela one too. And it was like saying like something like she is strong, she is brave and like all this, like this whole saying. And then yeah. Angela and I, we had not cried all day that day. And then we're like, ah, you know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that was kind of cool. But and then at the end it says you are her. Yeah. Or something like that. She is you or you are her. Yeah. It was really sweet. Um, but anyway, so the, the day before this, um, I'm just throwing, scrolling through Facebook and, I was like, oh, my gosh, so-and-so changed her profile to my dad's picture. That's cool. And the more I keep scrolling, the more I keep seeing. And within, like, probably the next two days, that's all I saw was my dad's yeah. face. And, 
you know, um, I, I don't know. I was kind of in disbelief. Um, I didn't even know. It kind of put a fire under me that I honestly didn't know at this point had even existed. You know, I uh, thought, Dad, we're blessed. You're blessed. Look at the army you have fighting for you. This community is fighting for you, you know. And for everybody that changed their profile pictures, it's seriously, it struck something in me like I didn't even know. That, that's what gave me my fight. And I just want to thank everybody that did that because that's what, that's what did it for me. That's what got me out of my funk. That's what got me fighting even harder. And I'm like... I just want to thank each and every person from the bottom of my heart because I don't think they'll ever understand what that means to me, us. Hello, podcast listener. Hope you're enjoying this episode of Small Town Forgotten. When you're ready for a break from the true crime genre, come join us over on Mostly Superheroes, a weekly pursuit for the world's best stories with an emphasis on live-action superhero stuff. I'm your host, Logan. Join me, PC Mike, The Giggler, Scotty Scoop, and Carrie for a breakdown of all the TV and movies happening each week. Find us at MostlySuperheroes.com and listen where you get your podcasts. Watch us on YouTube and Facebook and enjoy the rest of the show. So they were arrested and then released. And we didn't understand why. In this small town, we had heard that they were celebrating with their families. I want to say something here for the people in Bonterre, Missouri, and for the families of the suspects. Some of their family members have reached out to me and the twins with hostility. I want to be very clear here, this is not a family feud. We have nothing against anyone but the people who committed the crime. And we understand that an arrest and a trial, it will be difficult for them. But what we really understand is that they, like us and like the twins, are victims of this crime. When they come to my family and say, you know, you need to have your family stop this podcast. Well, why? Because we've never said your name. We've never pointed a finger towards you. This was even before the arrest. So. Right. You know, stop coming would... at your family for what? Right. We, yeah. we didn't say anything about your family. Exactly. And I thought of it this way, too, that. Back in, you know, we all know through doing our own investigation that people are scared of these suspects. And I, we know of a couple instances to where people were threatened in 1989. And I felt like that was the next generation, how they handle the stress of this. I know for Andrea, because she's more of the feisty one, it was hard to sit back and take it. We're not after them. We have one goal in mind, and that's justice for my dad. And if whoever did it, um, I'm sorry if that's your family. I'm sorry if that's your grandpa. Arrested by the Missouri State Highway Patrol, but released because the prosecuting attorney would not press charges. We were angry. You know when you're in a high state of emotions, but you still think that you can be cool and logical? That was us. We wrote Melissa Gilliam, the prosecuting attorney, a letter. In hindsight, I'm not sure that we did a good job of being cool and logical, but Melissa's response was gracious enough. She invited the twins to meet with her and give them an update. 
you can say whatever you want if and if we don't want to put it in there we don't have to but but what 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 made you so angry just the fact that they were released do you think that people didn't do their jobs do you think at the time yes right and at the time i felt like we have put in all this work donnie had put in all this work we know who it is what could possibly went wrong mm-hmm. how much did it take for you to just keep your composure at that Everything. time to not just Everything, blow up i think yeah and it was almost like I didn't know how to handle my emotions. Um, I mean, I was a basket case for days. I mean, just, and then on top of it, my son had ACL surgery, so I had to take care of him on, you know, like checking on him in the middle of the night, and then I wasn't sleeping. Like, I was, I felt like a zombie for a few days just because I wasn't sleeping, and then whenever I would I didn't want to be around anybody. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just I needed some time to myself, and that wasn't happening. But, um, I mean, you know, with everything we had, I had going on with my son or whatever. But, um, and I think I felt hurt, like blindsided, kind of. Like we thought it was a go. Yeah, um, and I almost felt like they got away with it not once, but now twice. You know, yeah, like and, they got away with it again, and. I think it's keeping people from coming forward because, you know, as we have found out, people are scared of the suspects for some reason. And I think it's halting people coming forward because they they are afraid of the consequences because, you know, look, they killed someone. And I think that if they were behind bars, more people would come forward. I know a lot of people have come forward, but I think more people would come forward because the threat is behind bars. How did how did you feel going into the meeting and then coming out of the meeting? <laughs> we were nervous. Yeah, we took a uh, actually a picture before it. It was like, is it going to be cutthroat or nice? <laughs> because we know how she is and we know how I, I am. am. So, yeah, we try to keep it in the middle. But uh, it went really well. Yeah. Um, I think we had a, we had, our faith was restored and we knew that it wasn't over. It's just beginning. And looking at it from a different perspective, from someone who's going to be prosecuting, yeah. Um, I think that was very eye-opening because we're not investigators as much as we pretend or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, that's even though we've done a lot of our own investigating, we, it was just nice to hear this is why we had to let them go. This is our plan, and this is what we're going to do. And it... We're like, okay, that makes sense. Whenever before, we're like, how could this be? And then once we got in there, we're like, okay, this makes sense that um, it's not over. So that's our side of the story and the twins' side of the story. It wouldn't be fair if we didn't ask Melissa Gilliam, St. Francis County's prosecuting attorney, for her perspective. We invited her on the podcast 
and last week Melissa agreed to sit down with me in person. We talked about what happened with the arrests, and she then gave me exciting news. Yeah, there's no statute of limitations on murder. And so, you know, when we charge it, we want to make sure we have all of our ducks in a row and that we have our uh, everything lined up and the investigation complete. And it, it was very fortuitous because after that occurred, we were actually able to discover um, some of the original evidence in the case. Now, before we jump into the specifics of the case, in terms of arresting someone for murder, can you just kind of lay out what the responsibilities are of the investigators and then what the responsibilities are for you as the prosecutor? Yeah, so, you know, if you've ever watched the show Law & Order, the beginning it says the criminal justice system is made up of two separate but equally important groups. It is true. The police are there to investigate the crimes and we're there to prosecute the Offender. So we are, uh, so they go out, they do the legwork, they interview people, they gather the evidence, they do the investigation, they p- prepare police reports, they provide us with recordings or surveillance video if they have it, and they check for fingerprints. And of course, in this case, you know, they were limited. There wasn't much evidence gathering that can be done because it's a cold case from 1989. Um, but everything that they could do and the people that they could talk to that they were aware of as witnesses, they are and continue to talk to. So basically my role then comes in when they have prepared their reports, they've finished the investigation, and they believe that they have probable cause to arrest someone and charge them for the crime. Um, And so what we do is sit down and go over it together and talk about what we have and what we don't, like what information we have. And if then as a prosecutor, we are trained to look at it kind of, I guess we're removed a step because we're not involved in the initial investigation. So our emotions aren't as into it as somebody like the dedicated uh, investigation, which gives us the advantage of looking at it from a clinical way of here's what evidence we have, here's what we need in order to prove the case and take it to a jury. Because cases that are this old and being and potentially being charged later, you have to have everything in in line before you get started because it's a finite amount of time in which the case can be handled because of defendant's rights and all of those things. So we have to be able to have all of that ready to go at the time of charging. And at this point, um, we are just waiting. We're waiting on the results of some testing and potentially any interviews. We want anyone at all who has any information to come forward and talk to police. And we believe that there still are individuals out there that haven't done that. Asking suspects to come in after a long period of time can also help witnesses feel more confident to come forward and lead us to more evidence. So that's where the prosecutors come in is we look at the evidence that they have and we we make a determination and we sit down and we talk about it. So in that situation, we did that. We did that the next day and sat down and talked about it. And, you know, my concern was that we were aware that there was physical evidence out there, and at that point in time, we had not located it, but we have now. And so 
that's that's a good thing that has occurred and and was actually what I was anticipating and hoping for. Really, I was really hoping for that. And I think about two weeks after that meeting is when I got the call that they did locate it and we were able to get it sent to the Missouri State Highway Patrol Lab and it's being processed right now. So it, explain to me the the evidence that was found, uh, possibly how that was found. Can you talk to that? Well, I can't really give too much details about it because, again, we're just hoping that any information that we give out here will help in in anyone coming forward and knowing that we have additional information to help the investigation. I could just say it's evidence that was collected at the scene during the original incident when it occurred back in 1989. So we knew it existed. We just didn't know the location due to the age of it. And we figured out that the prosecutor at the time had collected the evidence and taken it for court purposes. And so when it came back, it got put into a different location. And then, you know, we were able to determine that because of the fact that it had gone to court. So you can confirm that you did find physical evidence from the scene that night yes. that, that you are able there, that a lab is able to obtain DNA from. They are doing it right now. Usually it takes about 18 months to get those results back. But in this case, from what I was told at the lab that the the cold cases are kind of what DNA experts who do the analysis, they kind of live for. So when they found that out, they were willing to, to move. well, one, homicides are prioritized, but also, you know, cold case homicides. So they have um, moved it up and they are processing it right now. I think I got a call on Monday that they were starting everything. Sure. I mean, it, it kind of sounds like something out of a TV show, like they found a box of evidence or out of a podcast. Right. You can't write this. Right. And, you know, I mean, I I was so excited and it was, um, and in fact, I was supposed to meet with the twins uh, the day before I got the call that they found it, but they had the, they had COVID. So oh. <laughs> they didn't come in. And so I said, it was fortuitous because then the next week when we rescheduled, we were able to tell them about that and we're able to tell and talk about it here because of we want to have the investigation. We want anyone else who knows any information to come forward and talk to the police to feel more comfortable doing that. And we can talk more about that with the witness protection program and stuff like sure. that. Sure. So yeah, after the suspects were held and then not charged, I think there was a, a feeling like the the twins and us were deflated, and then they had a meeting scheduled with you in November, um, and, and in that time is when this evidence was found. So can can you kind of go over how did you feel going into that discussion with them? Oh well, I was excited to tell them about that because, you know, we have to. It's emotions get involved when obviously your family members killed. There's no doubt about that. And we understand that, but we also want to make sure that we're doing our job right. There's no justice if we don't do it right and somebody is found not guilty at the end because we jumped the gun. And since there's no there's no statute of limitations on murder, we're able to take our time with that. And that was me saying, let's not rush this. Let's make sure we have everything that we need in order to move forward. And so it wasn't any kind of statement regarding who they interviewed or who they brought in. It was just at this point in time, we need to, we need more work done. And so that, that was something that the investigators agreed to do and they continued on. And and so we're here today. So yeah, amazingly enough, we have DNA from the scene can you speak to, now that it's at the lab, what are you looking for in 
in those results? What what specifically could the DNA do to to move the case forward? Well, it it it'll, it could identify who was present at the scene, and that was present at the scene of the homicide. So it could give us a lot of information because it could tell us who was there. Back in 1989, DNA analysis was brand new and no one really knew a lot about it. Uh, Locally, we didn't have much access to any DNA testing. When they sent those items to the lab back in 1989, they basically just checked for blood type, or anything that they would they could identify, but it wasn't. They were not able to test it for who it actually belonged to the way they can they can now. So I I tried a murder case from 2012 this year, and they were tell the the DNA lab expert was telling me how much DNA has changed just since 2012 when that occurred, how the processes have gotten better, and they're able to do much more with it even since. 10 years ago. Wow. So imagine since 30 years ago. So you've collected this DNA or have found this DNA that was from the scene. Um, I assume that the next step is to collect DNA from people who investigators believe would have been at the scene and collect DNA from them. Yeah. So what happens is uh, what's called a search warrant. Um, We are able to get search warrants from courts uh, that allow us to take the DNA of any individuals who are suspects in the case. We have to state why we believe they're suspects and um, have the court review that to make sure that you know what we're saying is correct and we are able to, to go obtain that because we don't want to just run around taking the DNA from any old person. We need to have probable cause and reason to believe that they are a suspect. So, um, yeah, we were, we were able to obtain DNA uh, from our persons of interest in this case. Great. Was David Brian White one of those people? Well, I don't want to comment directly on okay. who it was, um, but we, they, the investigators were extremely thorough and um, asked for DNA from any individual that they wanted to either include or exclude. So rule in or rule out. So okay. Anyone that is possible, they would want to talk to and get that sample. Did you catch that part that Melissa said about why we believe they are suspects? That means that the search warrant the suspects get has all of the reasons why they are suspects. We were able to get a copy of the search warrant, and it was explicit. I cannot read it to you, and after 11 episodes, I'm sure that you can guess why. I will tell you this, that when it was read to me, I was shocked. Hearing the case laid out so clearly by someone other than our team was shocking. I think now I know how the twins feel. We are not alone. We want to thank Melissa Gilliam and the investigators for taking us this far. We had lost faith, but that faith has been restored. Hello, small town forgotten listeners. My name is Bob Miller, and I'm the host of a podcast I think you'll find interesting. It's called The Lawless Files. Like Small Town Forgotten, The Lawless Files is a scrappy, serial true crime narrative based here in Missouri, just south of Cape Girardeau. My podcast exposes all of the lies told by the identical twin who was the state's key witness that put the wrong man in prison, and all the ways the sheriff looked the other way. If you've appreciated the work that's gone into Small Town Forgotten, check out The Lawless Files. Can you lay out, we've talked about this uh, potential for a Missouri witness protection program of sorts. How could that help witnesses in this case? And how can you 
kind of explain what that is or, or how that could affect anyone involved in this? Yeah, so the Missouri has the VOCA, it's the Victim's Rights Statute, and it talks about the, the rights, but it also has money that's available for sort of a witness protection program. So it can be anything from transportation that they'll pay for, temporary storage rentals, child care, shelter, temporary relocation expenses, um, any if, if you need lock replacement to ensure their safety. Yeah, they, they provide monetary, I guess, reimbursement for anyone that needs to take steps to ensure their safety if they're worried about that, if they're worried that if they come forward in a case that they will suffer harm. I will say that in 15 years of working in the city, I handled a lot of homicide cases. I had I talked to a lot of witnesses who were afraid that their testimony would end up in repercussions against them, and it never happened. It's a legitimate fear, and we certainly understand it, but it's very, very rare that you, you see or hear about that, especially because whenever we arrest and charge people for murder, we ask for a high bond so that they will stay locked up because they're a danger to the community. So I, I would anticipate if anyone was charged in this case with murder that they would be uh, held in jail pending trial because they would have to post a bond. Now, obviously, I can't speak to the individual sure. financial means of of the people involved, but I would anticipate that it would be a high enough amount that it would be difficult to post. So I would, I would think those folks would be in jail prior to any testimony having to occur. Okay. Going back to uh, David Brian White, when he was in jail awaiting trial for three years, what, in your opinion, why was he held in jail for that long only to be released right before a trial date? Well, so the reason he was held in jail was because he was charged with, with murder. And um, the prior prosecutor believed that he had the evidence and the proof in order to prove it. Obviously, Gary Stevenson's passed away. Um, I did talk to Dave Orzel, who was his assistant at the time, and he did not recall the case or recall any reasons. So we really don't know. Um, I can speculate that the reason he dismissed it prior to trial was he did send off some some of the evidence to the lab to be checked. So I think that maybe he anticipated that would come back and give him more information. But as we said earlier, there wasn't any DNA testing back then. So it wasn't able to give him any good results. So I'm not sure um, why he made the decision he made versus um, a continuance or, or, or what exactly was going through his mind. I just know that that was a decision. The case was dismissed and that it was never refiled. Are you in contact with the investigators, and can you tell us where it is right now? Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot. Actually, I talked to one of them last night. We are always hoping that anyone that has information will come forward. You you watch these shows on the ID channel, right, or Law & Order or something, where people come forward many, many years later, and they they solve the case, and that's that's a good thing because – a lot of times people just need to get it off their chest and they feel much better after doing so. So we're hoping that anyone else that has information, because the, the investigation has gone and talked to a lot of people, mm-hmm. but we know there's other people out there that probably saw something that they haven't told anyone about yet. So we just want them to know that we are going to be very supportive of them. And if they come forward and tell us that 
we really just were interested in the information of what they saw. And hopefully, if, if anyone's listening to this, they, they will be willing to do that, knowing that in addition to what they have to say, others have talked to us as well. And then also with the physical evidence is, is being processed. So a prosecutor has to focus on doing the right thing. Uh, we filed charges that's supported by evidence against the person that's truly involved in the crime. But we don't want to get tunnel vision. You know, we don't want to hone in on one person and, and we cannot just rubber stamp the actions of others because if we do, then um, we could have the wrong person charged. And we don't want that. No prosecutor wants to live with having the wrong person charged on their conscience, right? So, you know, we take the time to review it and make sure that everything is there, that the evidence fits, and that when we present it to the jury, they will they'll agree with us. So it's not about winning or losing it's about getting justice for the person, uh, the, the family, and the victim that's involved. Because, you know, somebody going free and not being found guilty isn't justice if we could have done more to get that. So if there's a point in time, you know, that we feel we have everything together, then, you know, we'll be announcing uh, who we're charging and what the charges are. We're sure. still leaving it. It's still uh, an ongoing investigation that is, is being done. And so I think that it's something we are hopeful for, though, that there will be a conclusion sometime pretty soon, I think. At the top of our priority is not messing up an investigation. That being said, we're going to just continue to move forward in telling the story because I, I, I believe that, us telling the story has had a positive impact on it. Yeah. And, and I think, I, I think that now that every, it seems that everybody is kind of reinvigorated with this new evidence and we, we are here to help you in any way that we can. Yeah. And I know, I mean, we've talked several times because obviously it, your interests are to get as much information as you can. And Unfortunately, our hands are a little bit tied sure. prior to uh, trial because of the Missouri ethical rules for prosecutors and investigators. So, you know, we've always said we don't want to do anything to either, you know, taint or tamper with any reason why we couldn't have the jury trial here in St. Francis County or to get any information out that shouldn't be out there. So, you know, we, you know, that we've always encouraged you guys not to, to, dis to right. discuss certain things because of that. Um, you know, so I just, with that caveat, I guess you could say, I know you got, if you're putting things out there, you know, that's up to you guys, but just with the disclaimer that sure. we really don't, we don't want you to, right? but you believe it'll assist it. So yeah, just cause I was talking to uh, Matt last night and he's the most you know reticent to talk and, um, you know, I said with the, just, you know, most of the time I think you guys will be like, well, you know, we, you didn't get it from law enforcement. Right. It came from other sources, your own investigation sure. or, or whatever. So Yeah, and it's all well documented where yeah. everything we have came from. And, so. and provided to, to the investigators as well. In conclusion, we want to apologize to our listeners for going silent. The podcast has always walked a fine line between telling the story, bringing attention to the twins' fight, and protecting information in the hopes of a trial. We still plan on walking the line, but maybe it's not where we always thought it was. We are not just telling a story. We are revealing the truth. We know that the more people who listen, the more people learn what is really happening in small towns. Because it's not just our family. 
It's the families of Timmy Dees, Michaela Jones, Durante Martin, Douglas Teal, Jacob Kirkpatrick, Gina Dawn Brooks, and many others. It's because we are telling Angela and Andrea's story that the case was reopened, that the witnesses have come forward, that we are waiting for DNA results. And now, so much more has been discovered since the arrest and release. So much quiet work, interviews, research, and combing over the 600 pages of case files that we finally got thanks to David Brian White. Oh, did I bury that lead? When David learned of the arrests, he was motivated to process the paperwork to get his case files. He wants to clear his name. He wants justice, too. And we will share much of the information in these files in the episodes to come. Something the twins said in their interview struck me. They said, it's all for their dad. It is about justice for Jimmy. But not all for Jimmy. Not really. Mostly, it's about justice for the twins. David Brian White is doing it for the twins. The prosecuting attorney's office and the investigators are doing it for the twins. Those people who have come forward are doing it for the twins. And we know you're listening, Andrea and Angela. And we want you to know that even us, Ashton and I, Sean and Vanessa, and everyone else at Small Town Forgotten, we are all doing it for you. Because after knowing you, all that you've been through and all that you've done, how could we not? Next time on Small Town Forgotten, professor of criminal justice and former Los Angeles public defender Mark Zavado teaches me about types of evidence. Circumstantial evidence, when it's good circumstantial evidence, you ultimately say to yourself, what other explanation could there be that would be rational? And, and so it can be much more uh, tight in terms of cornering a fact as true than even this vaunted um, direct evidence. Small Town Forgotten is presented by Blueburn Productions, writer and executive producer Vanessa Martin, creative and executive producer Ashton Holsey, director and executive producer Sean Lee Martin, and myself. Small Town Forgotten is produced in association with Vagrant Media Productions, Brett Wiley, Jake Delaloy, Caleb Cook. Podcast distribution and digital strategy by Logan Janis with Kerrigan Ventures. Original music written and performed by Todd Holsey. For more information, please visit smalltownforgotten.com. Please like, follow, and subscribe on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Special thanks to the twins, Andrea and Angela, for their perseverance. I'm your host, Chris Holsey. Thanks for listening to Small Town Forgotten.